0: Hugo Chavez has died today, Tuesday, March 5th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. After a two-year battle with cancer, President Hugo Chavez of Venezuela has died. The announcement was made by the country's vice president today. Also, uncertainty in Kenya, too. As ballots are being counted after a presidential election, this observer fears a repeat of the violence that followed the last presidential vote.
1: This is a more poisonous atmosphere. There's more rabid ethnic hatred in the air than there ever has been in this country.
0: And later, it's been a long journey for the director of New Zealand's top modern dance troupe. I told my parents that I wanted to go to dance school. My mother
2: cried and my father simply just um, shook his head and walked away from me.
3: rise, The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Venezuela is mourning its comandante. It's now official. President Hugo Chavez has died after a two-year battle with cancer. Venezuela's vice president made the announcement today. Chavez wasn't able to overcome the latest complications following his fourth cancer surgery in Cuba. The news of Chavez's death doesn't come as a surprise. There's been intense speculation in Venezuela about his deteriorating health, and the president had not been seen or heard in public for three months, ever since leaving for that surgery in Cuba in early December. Still, now that it's official, Chavez's passing will generate new political turmoil in a deeply divided Venezuela. The Venezuelan military issued a statement today vowing to protect the sovereignty and security of the country. We're going to step back from the uncertainty surrounding Venezuela's political future to hear more about the man who dominated the country for the past 14 years. Rory Carroll was Latin America bureau chief for Britain's Guardian newspaper. He covered President Chavez in Venezuela for seven years, and he's the author of a new book about Chavez called Comandante. He says Chavez's roots were humble. He had a remarkable rise. He was from the plains of Barinas, which is basically the, the
4: wild west of Venezuela, from a tiny town called Sabaneta. Uh, his parents were teachers, uh, very humble means, uh, although he's raised by his grandmother in basically an adobe or mud shack uh, in his early years. But the parents managed to push him through school and as a teenager he fell in love with baseball and his passion and dream was to be a pitcher in the major leagues and for that reason he joined the army. He, joined, he signed up as a cadet to the military academy in Caracas hoping that this would open the doors to the major leagues. But instead he fell in love with the army um, and the rest in a way is history because he, he fell in love with the army, he rose up through the ranks and then he acquired a dream of revolution. Uh, He felt that Venezuela needed a revolt. It needed a cleansing. And he felt that he would be the man to do it. And he launched a a coup in 1992 when he was a lieutenant colonel. And that set him on the trajectory to the Hugo Chavez that we know of
0: today. And Rory, do you know where that kind of uh, dreams of revolution came from while he was in the army? I mean, is he kind of one of these classic Latin American leftist traditionalist Castro Che? Or did he have another path? It was very sui generis. It was very
4: particular circumstances, I think, for Hugo Chavez. One is that as a boy, he was steeped in the legends and mythology of of Venezuelan history. His own great-grandfather was a a rebel outlaw called Maizanta. And he had been considered by some people as a mass murderer, by other people as a sort of uh, Butch Cassidy, Pancho Villa type character. And um, Chavez fell in love with this story of his own, of his own great grandfather. And also, growing up, he, he adored uh, the stories of Simon Bolivar, the great liberator of uh, of Venezuela. And he became convinced that uh, Bolivar's wars of independence against Spain were, were incomplete. That yes, Venezuela and Latin America had won its independence from Spain, but yet to have its win its economic independence. And he felt that the, the fact that Venezuela was such a a society of ex- extreme inequality and poverty was a stain on the legacy of Bolivar and that he, Hugo Chavez, would rise up um, and complete Bolivar's legacy by liberating his people from poverty and um, from continued economic dependence. Mm. So it was this mixture of, uh, you could call it either megalomania or just someone who
0: steeped in the, in the patriotism of their own country. Pretty unique. And he had a pretty unique style when it came to governing a country. How would you characterize it? extraordinary Uh, I've
4: never seen anyone like him I've covered the Vatican Silvio Berlusconi um, African uh, leaders and so forth and I've never seen anybody quite quite like him firstly though his his energy levels I mean the man was a machine Uh, he would work I mean 18 19 hours a day he would be up still working until 3 or 4 in the morning phoning his ministers so they're all in terror of their mobile phones because at any at any point in the day Chavez may may phone you Um, he was incredibly charismatic and he translated that um because he was a communicator of genius into mass media. Um, He was really a made-for-television president, and he ruled in many ways through television. He made these almost daily appearances, often uh, extensive. They could go on for up to eight or nine hours. Um, Sometimes he would chain the airwaves, meaning he would oblige every single radio and TV station in the country to transmit him live. Mm. And he would talk for uh, an extraordinary length um, and a very entertaining way as well. And he made uh, this showmanship a a key part of his rule, and that was one of the, the secrets of his success rory you you met
0: Uga chavez uh, what was he like as a person
4: uh he was overwhelming in in, in some ways i uh, actually I was on his television show one day and um I was in the audience I was just one of two journalists and he, he he singled me out and he said, ah, rory welcome what uh you know what what question do you have for me and I was recently arrived in Venezuela, so my Spanish is still uh rudimentary but uh, i I kind of stumbled my way through a question about his concentration of powers and boy he gave it to me he he did not like that question and he gave a very theatrical and very long, like it was about 15-20 minutes repost to me, and this is all on live on television, basically denouncing me as a, as a symbol and as an agent of European imperialism, of old-style European vice. And then he, he used this to say and to talk about um, how who, would, who elected the you know the British queen, um, about European colonialism in Africa and genocide, etc. And so it just went on and on and on. It was funny because I was the people were seated beside me, there was all these Chavista mayors and governors in the red t-shirts who had been seated beside me, but they were edging away from me, literally <laughs> moving their seats away to get out of his eyeline because, I mean, he was giving this kind of ferocious glare as he was uh, as he's pouring basically a bucket of abuse over my head. Um, so, I mean, that was a kind of baptism of fire for me. Yet, I must say, at the end of that show, he, he actually, he did come back to my question about four hours later into the show. He actually gave a thoughtful answer uh, in terms of why he's concentrating powers and why he wanted to perpetuate his rule. And he said, well, you know, the revolution is like... Um, it's like a painting, it's like a work of art. And I am the artist and as an artist when the work is half finished you can't just hand the brush over to someone else and expect them to finish the, the painting. And that was the metaphor he used to justify uh, his, his rule. And that was interesting. And at the end of the show, which went on for eight hours, at the end of which everybody's exhausted, wow. but he did come up to me and shake my hand. Um, and I must say, apart from anything else, as a sheer exercise in stamina, I mean, to sit under a baking, <laughs> baking heat. And this is this actually a show uh, taped on a beach. So he was sitting um, on a beach with a full panoply of, of, uh, of film crews around him. And, and he did it nonstop for eight hours. I mean, it's extraordinary.
0: What will be the legacy of Hugo Chavez, do you think? I mean, what in Venezuela will remain distinctly Chavista?
4: Well, in the short term, uh, economically, whoever wins, uh, whoever succeeds Chavez, be it either his chosen heir or somebody from the opposition – is going to face a really difficult time um, mending the economy because the economy is now trapped in all sorts of distortions and dysfunctions. And putting it back on some sense of normality is going to be quite a painful and controversial process. And so that's going to be that's going to be the immediate legacy. I think the longer term will be the institutions that he politicized everything, including the army, uh, civilian militias, the civil service. And trying to if you like to to bring a sense of kind of, of of normality back to that could be a task for decades and I think one model maybe we 're looking at peronism uh, juan Peron, the the husband of evita Peron in argentina right. um, he died um, decades and decades ago and basically but even a half a century after he had uh, given a power, their Peronism and factions of Peronism still exist and thrive in Argentina. And I think in Venezuela, we're going to see v- various forms of Chavismo, even rumps of Chavismo, will, will still be there decades to come.
0: Rory Carroll of Britain's Guardian newspaper and author of the forthcoming book about Hugo Chavez. Rory, thank you so much. Thank you, Marco. It's been a pleasure. Again, news out of Venezuela today that President Hugo Chavez has died after a two-year fight with cancer. The official announcement was made by the Venezuelan government in Caracas. Political turmoil is also stalking Kenya, where voters went to the polls this weekend to elect a new president. The ballots are still being counted, but preliminary results show Uhuru Kenyatta, leading by a wide margin. He's under indictment by the International Criminal Court for his alleged role in the wave of ethnic violence that consumed Kenya after the last presidential vote in 2007. Many Kenyans are worried that ballot disputes after this year's vote could lead to more bloodshed. Reporter Michaela Wrong is in Nairobi.
1: I think people will tell you that the price they paid after the last elections was so high. There were 700,000 people displaced, over 1,000 people killed. The economy went into a nosedive. That they'll say to you, we learned our lesson. We're not going to go down that route again. But of course, the stakes are very, very high. And both of the two main political parties are convinced they can win. And so this is almost a titanic struggle between two large ethnic groupings who feel that they've been struggling for power in this country ever since independence.
0: Is there more patience this time around? I mean, uh, and is there any violence that you've seen?
1: I think this is a more poisonous atmosphere. There's more rabid ethnic hatred in the air than there ever has been in this country. You cannot minimize the fact that there has been a political game played here by the elite, which has whipped up ethnic rivalry, ethnic antagonism. And that's very dangerous. We've seen what that leads to in other African countries.
0: Michaela, step back a bit and and talk about some of the pitfalls outsiders encounter when writing about Kenya's election. You just talked about the inter-ethnic rivalries, and I noticed that you did not use the T word, tribe. (laughs) That can get you into trouble, can't it, with some people in Africa, with people in Kenya?
1: Yes, I mean, the T word, i.e. tribe, is something that uh, if you use that word, and and you say Kenyans are a very tribal society, you will often be criticized by academics, members of the Kenyan diaspora, and members of the middle classes. But when you meet Kenyans, they're very unabashed about talking about tribe. They, They use the phrase... Of themselves, they'll say we're a very tribal society. And I think what's very striking here is that there was very little discussion of what policies the various aspirants, uh, the candidates, were proposing. Uh, you know where they stood on on the economy. I mean, we never really got to hear that much about that because it's all down to these kind of tribal mathematics, where several large ethnic communities will group up together, and then they know that they've got the numbers and they can win the elections.
0: You've described how ethnic gridlines crisscross Kenya. Explain that.
1: Well, I get very struck. I went up the Rift Valley last week. In one area we were touring around. There was a little path, and on one side lived the Kikuyu, and on the other side lived the Kalenjin. And, you know, you sense that this was a real ghettoization. And in fact, I was told in this area that on the main road, which divided the two communities, the American ambassador has visited once. And because there's such dislike between these two communities, he had to have a meeting in the middle of the, the asphalt to sign two separate guest books. Because so, uh, there was so much hostility between the two sides. Which side you're on will mean that you can or can't get onto um, a Matatu. Those are those just...
0: taxis, uh, bush taxis.
1: That's right. And you may not want to get on to, into a Matatu that is driven by someone from a, another ethnic community, or you might not want to buy tomatoes at a stall that's run by someone from a different community. Now, that's by no means uh, the case everywhere in Kenya, but there are places where land which is a massive issue in Kenya, land disputes are really the festering wound of Kenya, where feelings are running so high that there's this sort of ghettoization that has developed.
0: So, Mikhail, what's the future of tribal alliances in Kenya? Do Kenyans seem to want to break out of these tribal bonds? Can they be forgotten?
1: In theory, the constitution is going to start tackling that, but it's going to take a long time. And it hasn't really had any effect yet because it's only just been introduced. If you go to areas in Kenya, for example, like in Western Kenya, where there has never been a president from that area, you will find that there's no local airport, access to water is nothing like as good as it is elsewhere in Kenya, uh, that the road's in a terrible state. And this is what happens. you, Your guy's not in power. You are completely out in the cold. And that's why the contest for power is, can be so vicious uh, in Kenya, that so you have to have a state where the institutions work for everyone.
0: Journalist Michaela Rong in Nairobi for the presidential elections there in Kenya. She's the author of several books about Africa, including It's Our Turn to Eat, the story of a Kenyan whistleblower. Michaela, thank you.
1: Okay, it's a pleasure.
0: China's on the final lap of its leadership transition. The new government officially takes power during the annual legislative session that started today. Outgoing Premier Wen Jiabao used his State of the Nation address to talk about the successes and the shortcomings of his government's decade in power. The world's Mary Kay Magstad reports from Beijing.
5: Ask Chinese citizens in the hinterland what's on their minds as their leaders gather in Beijing, and you might get answers like this. I
6: feel in China now the gap between the rich and the poor are very wide, and the uh, poor people can never catch up with the rich people.
5: That's Ms. Yao, a young aspiring businesswoman in a flouncy peach miniskirt. Then there's construction worker Wang Lin Jin. He says he wishes his salary were higher because he's barely making it on what he earns. And then Ms. Liu, a 63-year-old retired receptionist, says pensions need to be higher because the cost of living has gone up so much and all but basic health care is out of reach. All this in a country that still calls itself communist and pledges every year around this time to put the people first. Over the past decade, China's economy has roared ahead. Still, departing Premier Wen Jiabao in his final report to the National People's Congress today listed not just his government's achievements, but also the ways in which it has fallen short.
1: The development gap between urban and rural
5: areas and between
1: regions is large, and so are income disparities between individuals. Social problems have increased markedly and many problems in the area of education, employment, social security, medical care, housing, the environment, food and drug safety, workplace safety, and public order affect people's vital interests.
5: The growth in income disparity wasn't really expected a decade ago when Premier Wen and President Hu Jintao came to power. Back then, there were hopeful murmurs that they'd help the little guy and be political reformers to boot. They did drop the agricultural tax and offer rural kids compulsory education for free. And early in their tenure, they handled the SARS crisis with refreshing transparency after covering it up for a few months. But then the lid came down again on critical voices. Nobel Prize winner Liu Xiaobo was locked up for advocating a multi-party democracy And former newspaper editor Li Da Tong lost his job because of sharp-edged reporting. Li scoffs at current pledges to crack down on corruption. He says it can't be done without a free press and other checks on power. Lee says even the best surgeon can't operate on himself. You can't fly in the air by pulling your own hair to raise you up. Without external checks and balances, how much can you really do to fight corruption? Corruption will just get worse. But that's now a problem for the new government. As for the outgoing leaders, they turned out not to be reformers after all. But they do leave an unexpected legacy. They've transformed China from largely a bystander in international affairs to a player and a rather muscular one at that, pushing its territorial claims in disputed waters and developing its military. Here's Premier Wen on that today.
3: We should accelerate modernization of national defense and the armed forces so as to strengthen China's defense and military capabilities. We should resolutely uphold China's sovereignty, security and territorial integrity and ensure its peaceful development.
5: Peaceful development is what China's new leaders say they want too. And with growing social tensions, rising expectations, and a tangle of policy contradictions to work through, they'll have their hands full upon taking office. New leader Xi Jinping is saying he wants to rejuvenate China. Whether history will judge a decade from now that that's what he did is still anyone's guess. For The World, I'm Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing.
3: This is PRI, Public Radio International. The world is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes. Application and information available at medtronic.com globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman,
0: and this is The World. Out of sight, out of mind. That could sum up our attitude to what goes on under the surface of the ocean. We can't see it, so we don't give it much thought. Of course, that means we often do a lot of damage down there without really noticing it. Some marine plants suffer from that. Sea grasses, for example. They grow in shallow coastal areas around the globe, including off the Mediterranean coast of Spain. That's where the world's Ari Daniel Shapiro found one effort to save a vital seagrass species.
7: (laughs) I'm on board a small boat that's motoring away from a dock in Lestartit, a picture postcard Spanish town up the coast from Barcelona. We head into a warm breeze rolling off the Mediterranean towards a scrubby island. The boat stops just offshore and Jordi Sanchez, a marine biologist, slaps on a snorkel and dunks his head underwater. When he surfaces, he's beaming. Sanchez says snorkeling here is like flying over a miniature forest. That's because waving in the water beneath us is a field of Posidonia, a kind of seagrass that grows to a height of about three feet, and it's just teeming with life. Peces pequeños. Little fish. Squid, uh, octopus, urchin, sea star. Sanchez says all these species thrive in this thicket of seagrass, which makes it a key part of the coastal ecology and the local fishing economy. But Posidonia isn't faring so well. It's slowly disappearing, here and elsewhere, and there are a lot of reasons for that decline. But in a place like this, just anchoring a boat can be a problem.
8: Con el ancla se tiran unos metros de cadena.
7: Sanchez says that anchors in their chains tear up the seafloor and destroy the Posidonia. Each anchor, he says, leaves behind a barren, sandy path through the grassy forests. Multiply that by thousands of anchors a year and you get some idea of the threat. The problems go well beyond anchors. Warmer water temperatures, coastal development, and pollution are all affecting Posidonia and other seagrass species across the Mediterranean and around the world. So there is a not a single location that is devoid of this negative human influence. Javier Romero is a marine ecologist at the University of Barcelona.
2: There is not a risk of extinction of seagrasses, but is the total amount of seagrasses that is reducing progressively. And this reduction means a reduction in the goods and
7: services they provide. Vital goods and services, like providing food and habitat for countless marine species, protecting shorelines from erosion, even storing carbon. Estimates of the damage to seagrass beds worldwide vary, but one recent survey put the figure at a nearly 30% decline since the 19th century. It's a problem that's pretty much out of sight because it's all happening underwater. Here in Catalonia, the regional government has taken small steps to address it, but Javier Romero says the scale of the challenge can feel overwhelming. That's why he supports local action efforts that make a difference to one seagrass ecosystem at a time. It's a message that resonates with the conservation team working off Las the Medes Islands, where Jordi Sanchez is snorkeling. is a protected area. Boats that want to fish or even just moor here have to follow special rules. Looking across the water, I see numerous buoys bobbing up and down. Each one's connected to an anchor that's been screwed into the ocean floor. To stop here, a vessel has to tie up to one of them. And if no buoys are available, you just have to come back later.
8: It's helping to preserve this habitat.
7: Manel Gasso directs Submon, the environmental group that installed the moorings as a model for other communities. And we are just trying to convince uh, local authorities to use this kind of mooring system. Gasso and his colleagues are also partnering with local fishermen. The buoys were a tough sell at first, he says, until Submon reframed seagrass protection as a shared goal, saving an ecosystem that the fishermen's livelihoods depend on. Gasso says now many of the fishermen here have become advocates for the seagrass. They watch out for changes in the health of the Posidonia or for other fishermen harming the seagrass. Of course, not all fishermen are happy with these kinds of restrictions, but some are calling for even more.
3: Mikkel
7: Sacane is a fisherman and a biologist. He says fishermen are aware of the de importance of the de seagrass, de and de the de government de needs de to de understand 6, and prevent the causes of the decline, de all, de the the decline, the all so that future generations can continue reaping its
3: rewards. Las generaciones futuras puedan de alguna forma seguir explotando aquella zona.
7: It's a big challenge, especially with climate change raising the stakes. One recent study found that warmer sea temperatures alone could reduce Posidonia meadows to the point where they're functionally extinct. But biologist Jordi Sanchez says people in the region must rise to the challenge. The future is in our hands, Sanchez says. We can't lose hope, especially since there's so much more work to be done. For The World, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro, Lestartit, Spain.
0: Ari's story was produced with help from Atlantic Public Media and the Encyclopedia of Life, and their series, One Species at a Time. We've got more on the story at theworld.org, where there's also a great video from Ari. It uses Google Earth to explore an ecological face-off in the Mediterranean between the Posidonia seagrass and an invasive algae from halfway around the world. We were talking earlier in the program about stereotypes of Africa with journalist Michaela Wrong. Well, Cape Verde is one African country that breaks many stereotypes. It's not even on the African continent, it sits far out at sea in the Atlantic Ocean, due west of Senegal. As an island, it's got its own set of influences. Cape Verde was one of those places not many people had heard of until a singer named Cesaria Evora came along.
9: Não tem fé, não tem Mapaul, Evera Cesaria Everett died in two thousand
0: eleven, but she worked until her last days. Just wanted to share a delicious little taste of her final project. This new and posthumously released CD is called Mai Cariñosa, or Mother Affection. I can't tell you how many times we've played Cesare's music on the world for you. We just love her here, the barefoot diva who smoked on stage while
9: she sang. <laughs> Água ta colena que mudará um paraíso, um criterio, um jardim de amor, ai tu poe de meu. A
0: track titled Esperanza, off Cesare Evera's latest and posthumous CD. The news is next. This is PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman, coming up on The World, the enduring popularity of Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin, 60 years after his death. He's still revered by many, especially in his native Georgia.
10: They are somehow proud about Stalin because he was a Georgian. And this mass murder is a famous Georgian outside of Georgia.
3: PRI's The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10 Mile Run. Medtronic Global Heroes application and information available at medtronic.com/globalheroes. I'm
0: Marco Werman. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Last week, the Pope. This week, elections in Kenya and official handover of power in China. Here's another transition that happened 60 years ago today. (inaudible) Radio Moscow announcing the death of Soviet leader Joseph Stalin. During his 30-year rule, Stalin arrested, deported, or executed tens of millions of Soviet citizens. And yet, get this, a new survey of Russians and other ex soviets found that Stalin is widely admired, even revered, especially in the former Soviet Republic of Georgia. Bridget McCarthy reports.
11: Citizens of the former Soviet Union have yet to bury Joseph Stalin. Tom Duvall is at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace.
12: Stalin is a figure not just of the past, but of the present. He's very much there in the heads of the people all across what's the former Soviet Union
11: which is why the Carnegie Endowment commissioned this survey in Russia and several other post-Soviet countries. Duval says support for Stalin has actually increased since the end of the Soviet Union 21 years ago. While Russians acknowledge that Stalin was responsible for the deaths of millions of innocent people, a majority says he also saved the Soviet Union from Nazi Germany. That's Russia. But how is Stalin viewed in Georgia? After all, the most powerful dictator in Russian history was a cobbler's son from Georgia.
12: One of the things you see around Georgia is how there are just basically pictures of Stalin in everyday life.
11: Yet until now, no one had ever commissioned a poll on attitudes towards Stalin in Georgia. Devault was stunned by the results.
12: 45% of Georgians have a positive view of Stalin, which is really quite shocking to anyone who knows Stalin as, as one of the great murderers of the 20th century
11: only 20% had an unfavorable view of him.
10: And he w- was really very cruel in Georgia, especially.
11: That's Lasha Pakradze, director of the Georgian State Museum of Literature in Tbilisi. Even though he's Georgian, he was also taken aback to discover that so many of his countrymen still admire Stalin.
10: On the one side, we liked democracy. On the other side, we say that Stalin was not so bad guy. It make no big sense,
11: Bakradze says this kind of thinking is common in post-Soviet countries.
10: People say one side he was killing many people, he was butcher, but on the other side the same people say, okay, he was also the big personality and uh, somehow we like him.
11: Bakradze thinks that for Georgians this has nothing to do with nostalgia for Soviet times, nor is it a fondness for dictators.
10: They are somehow proud about Stalin because he was a Georgian. And this mass murder is a famous Georgian outside of Georgia.
11: Bakradze teaches a college course on Soviet history, and he's amazed at how little his students actually know about Georgia's most famous or infamous son. After Stalin's death, Nikita Khrushchev denounced the crimes of his predecessor in a secret speech to Communist Party officials in 1956. Khrushchev also tore down all statues of Stalin and erased his name from streets and towns across the Soviet Union. But Stalin never really disappeared from Soviet Georgia. And his childhood home in the town of Gori became something of a shrine with a 20-foot bronze statue of him nearby. Three years ago, Georgia's pro-Western president, Mikhail Saakashvili, had that statue taken down. Bakradze thought it was a bad idea and spoke out against it.
10: Because I think... Before we are taking down the monument, we have to have a big discussion about Stalin period and Soviet period in Georgian history, which we don't have.
11: President Saakashvili could have started that conversation, says Tom Duvall, but he didn't.
12: And funnily enough, it's exactly what Khrushchev did 50 years before when Khrushchev, in the middle of the night, took Stalin out of the mausoleum in Red Square, where he was lying next to Lenin. People woke up, The next morning, Stalin was gone. Saakashvili did exactly the same thing in Gori. He took down the big Stalin statue. No public consultation.
11: And now there's a plan to put the statue back up, just down the street. Lasha Bagradze says Georgia and other post-Soviet countries need to regain their historical memory.
10: We don't know about so many things. Many, many problems which we have. It's problems coming from the Soviet time. It is a problem of building of democracy. And when we know more about Soviet time, we will understand self better and we can solve these problems maybe easier as we are doing now. And Stalin's life and
11: legacy would be a good place to start. For the world, I'm Bridget McCarthy.
0: Find more of Bridget's in depth reporting on the former Soviet Union at theworld.org. Life in the Palestinian territory of Gaza is far from normal. It's overcrowded, lacks basic infrastructure, and is overflowing with weapons, which makes it all the more remarkable that the U.N. organizes a marathon there. As one official put it, the race shows that Gaza could be a normal place if it got the chance. Well, it won't get the chance this year. The U.N. has just canceled the race. In a few minutes, we'll hear why. But first, we're going to test your knowledge of Gaza in today's geo quiz. So the Gaza Strip is about 26 miles long, which is perfect for marathons. The course for the Gaza Marathon runs the full length of the coastal territory. But can you name the cities that would have been the starting and finish lines? That's geo GeoQuiz. Run with it. We're going to talk about hip-hop in Gaza in just a moment. Jean-Pierre Filio stopped by our studio earlier today. He's a professor of Middle Eastern Studies at the School of International Studies, or Sciences Po, in Paris. And he came to town to give a lecture at Harvard about jihad in North Africa. But filio has another interest, rap music and the way it plays into the Arab Spring, starting in Tunisia.
8: Well, I've been listening to everything coming out from the streets, uh, grassroots music. I must admit that personally I'm more a flamenco or rock and roll fan. But when it comes to hip hop, the lyrics are really enlightening. They were really what made me understand uh, from the very beginning of the revolution in Tunisia, they were going to topple the dictator, because you had one unknown hip-hop singer from the city of Sfax in southern Tunisia, who deliberately challenged the president, he could uh, uh, survive this. So that meant that the uh, balance of power was not working anymore in favor of the security apparatus.
0: You must identify, obviously, like many people, an American characteristic in rap music, even though it's spread all over the world. How does the music differ, though? Or maybe is it the same when you find it in the Middle East talking about Arab Spring and revolution and democracy?
8: Well, first, they all idolize Tupac Shakur. Really? For them, Tupac is really the man, you know. So, how do you d- see
0: this? Posters oh, in rappers' oh, rooms uh, or t shirts? Yes, as they
8: speak about him and they have quotes about him and they sample his song. For example, in Nouakchott, the capital of Mauritania, was just hanging around by the market and I saw a Tupac graph on the wall and I immediately stopped uh, the car, came out, I said, I will join you later. And I spent the whole afternoon with a local uh, hip-hop uh, gang. Wow. That was wonderful because uh, this revolution is basically a generational revolution. It's really uh, not flower power but youth power, you know, empowerment of the younger generation that can't accept as normal to have those dictators dictating its fate until the end. What did the Mauritanians have to say about Tupac Shakur? Why did they like him? The more politicised one know about the Black Panther's background of him and the whole idea that he was, you know, uh, protesting against the social order, that he had a message that he was involved in the community. So they don't know so much the issue about uh, gang leaders, West Coast, East Coast, uh, the Las Vegas shooting. It's more the idea that he, he was a youngster like them, you know, expressing his rage, uh, I spend a lot of time, for example, with uh, rappers in Benghazi, which is not uh, spontaneously associated with hip-hop music. Mm. In Libya, it's incredible the quality of the rhymes. They are really inventive and how they mix English, Arabic, classical Arabic, colloquial Arabic, political songs. It's really a booming thing all over.
0: Now, you've even tried your hand at writing rap lyrics about the region. You collaborated with a French group, Zebda, I, I love them, about the Palestinian conflict. Uh, I'd like us to listen to a bit of that song. It's uh, about life in Gaza, Une vie du moins, which, which I guess roughly translates as a lesser life. Here it is.
3: Je suis né dans so Jean Pierre
8: Fillio, what is this song about? Oh, it's about a kid in Gaza, his life, his dreams, uh, the way he would love to travel out, the way he's tragically killed. The line "I live in a country that
0: doesn't exist, je, j'habite un pays qui n'existe pas." That, I mean, that's really Gaza, isn't it?
8: I think if I would be able to convey that the basic aspiration of the Arab youth is living a normal life, then I would be happy of my day.
0: Jean-Pierre Fillieu, rap lyricist and professor of Middle Eastern Studies at Sciences Po in Paris. Thanks for coming in.
8: Thank you.
3: J'ai grandi trop trop vite entre deuil et oubli J'ai grandi en tutoyant l'horizon infini Le sable chaud sous mes pas me portait vers l'au-delà Je serai si grand, si fort, on ne verra que moi J'ai vécu à casa sans jamais en sortir J'ai vécu de jour en jour sans remords ni soupir Malgré les barbelés, le couvre feu les blindés
0: Back now to that marathon that was cancelled in the Gaza Strip. The UN organizers say they pulled the plug on the race because Gaza's Hamas authorities banned women from taking part. That means Naiti Delsante won't be making the trip from her home in Sweden to Gaza next month to compete. Delsante was one of the foreign competitors in last year's Gaza marathon. Today's cancellation, she says, has left her feeling sad and angry. I think it's a ridiculous
6: decision from the Hamas. From the government, so I was very sad for the children and for me, but also very angry.
0: Right, and you say it's a pity for the children of Gaza. Explain that, because you weren't just running a marathon last year, were you?
6: No, no. This is we raise funds for uh, children's uh, summer games, where they get two weeks, where they get to be childrens there. You know, they have recreation, they have sports, they have cultural activities. So I did run along with the childrens, uh, girls and boys, and they were very happy. And, uh, I mean, it's a joy to see them because they got very happy in that moment. And, and I think uh, it's something that they deserve there.
0: Mm, so understandably a disappointment for the children of Gaza and for you. Tell us about running the Gaza Marathon, though, when it was happening. What made it different from other marathons you've run?
6: Well, I can compare it to Paris, for example, where I, I have run Paris Marathon two times, and it's one of the biggest marathons in the world. You have uh, 40,000 people running, and then you have maybe 1 million people sharing you. So that's that's not the case in, in Gaza, where you we were maybe 40 people running the full marathon. And, uh, of course, you, you run through um, a country that is very um, hard, as a woman, I mean, I have to be fully dressed to cover it when I, I run. And then, of course, you have military the whole way. So it's very different. And then, you know, you, you run in, in a country that is very conflict.
0: Right. It's a place ridden with conflict. It's not like running through the gleaming streets of the City of Lights in Paris. As a woman, what did you experience running through Gaza last year?
6: Well, I, I experienced through the whole marathon, I have, I have a, there's a big security. So I have a, a car following me. But in one point, the car wasn't there. Then I was stopped by some um, people there, very religious and armored. So they didn't want me to, to run. So they uh, pointed at my clothes. Yeah, I didn't speak Arabic, but I understood that I didn't think that women should not run. That was very clear. Mm. message so I, I was got very afraid too because they were armored and pointing at the arms and pointed at my clothes so it's, yeah
0: how did uh, the situation resolve itself
6: uh, by because uh, i have a un car coming after me after five ten minutes so it's um, when they saw the car then they le- left me alone so it's okay then but uh but i was pretty scared then. I understood that there are some very religious people there that then, they really don't like women uh, exercising.
0: Hamas has said that the reason they don't want women running in the marathon is that it's not part of the local culture for women and men to run together and that foreigners should respect that. What do you think about that?
6: Well, so I think it's, okay, so I think it's a very ridiculous. I met a lot of people in Gaza that uh, were sharing me childrens uh, children's and women's and men. So I don't know what they mean about the culture. And of course, we must respect traditions, but uh, women have their rights too. So I mean, I don't like their position.
0: So, Naiti, we asked our listeners today to name the starting point and finish line of the actual course in the Gaza Marathon. Can you give those two points to us?
6: Uh, so we started close to refugee camp. The Beit Hanun, that is close to the Israel side. And the finish line almost at the Rafa, that's the border to the Egyptian side.
0: All right. So listeners, if you said the Beit Hanun refugee camp on the Israeli border down to the Rafa border crossing near the Egyptian border, that is the answer to the geo-quiz today. Those are the two points that runners in the Gaza Marathon would be running between if the Gaza Marathon was going ahead. But it's not. Nighty del Sante, sorry to hear that it's canceled. Uh, hope you can get in another one next year.
6: I hope so, too. And for the children, too. Thank you.
0: This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Seven young Saudi men received a stay of execution today. They were due to be put to death for armed robbery. The alleged ringleader was to be crucified. The others shot by firing squad. It's not known why the executions were postponed or for how long. Human Rights Watch has protested the case. Tamara al Rifai is a spokesperson for the organization. Tamara, I'm still just trying to get my head around crucifixion as a form of punishment. Briefly, is it common today in Saudi Arabia?
13: It's not common. Death penalty is still practiced in Saudi Arabia, but crucifying someone is, uh, apart from being outrageous today, is something new even to us.
0: What are these men, though, supposed to have done and was anyone killed during the spate of robberies?
13: These men were supposedly part of a larger group that were involved in the robbery of shops, jewelry shops. Now, what makes their case very special is that several of them were children, meaning under 18 at the time of the incident.
0: And so on what grounds is Human Rights Watch protesting uh, these death sentences?
13: On several grounds. One of them is um, in reference to the international human rights laws and more particularly the Convention on the Right of the Child, which the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has ratified. And this convention prohibits the death penalty for offenses committed by children or people under eighteen.
0: How about the trial? Did they get a, a fair trial?
13: No, the information we have is that they did not even go through a fair trial. They did not have access to proper defense. Um, they were intimidated. They were ill-treated during interrogation. So everything about this case just does not hold in terms of uh, these people's rights
0: Now, uh, the son of Saudi Arabia's King Abdullah, Prince Miteb, commented on the case last week uh, in the official Gazette there. He said the king does not like to see anyone condemned to death, but Islamic law or Sharia is, quote, above all. Um, can, Can you really condemn a country for following its own laws, regardless of how barbaric they may seem to others?
13: Well, the problem with Saudi Arabia in particular is that there is no criminal code, meaning there is no criminal law by which judges can go. Judges in Saudi Arabia can impose sentences as they see fit and in accordance to their own interpretation of Sharia or Islamic law. So this gives them a a lot of leeway to interpret things the way they want. And also, it does not provide consistency in the way different cases are being handled because every judge would read read Islamic law and interpret it differently.
0: Tamara al Rifai of Human Rights Watch, thank you.
13: You're most welcome.
0: If you've ever seen New Zealand's all-blacks rugby team, you know something about the haka. It's the Maori warrior dance they use as a warm-up. Well, New Zealand's leading contemporary dance company also uses Maori haka and Samoan traditions and turns them into something entirely new— Dime Roberts went to see that company, Black Grace, in Portland, Oregon, as they kicked off their North American tour.
14: Eleven mostly Samoan and Maori dancers fill the stage in Portland. Black Grace is performing a piece based on the traditional ideas of Samoan slap dancing. Dancers make sky-high jumps and quick turns to create complex rhythms of floor stomping, cries, and body slaps. Artistic director Neil Iremaya says he took Samoan slap dancing and melded it with a children's hand game to make a statement about child abuse.
2: It's a big thing back home, particularly in our um, indigenous culture. And being of Pacific Island descent, you know, I'd have kids' mates come to school all the time, bruises and, and what have you, and sometimes they wouldn't turn up at all. And then they'd turn up sort of six weeks later after the cast had come off and broken a broken piece of their body or something. So it was tough to reflect that back on our communities, but I really felt that's part of my responsibility.
14: That responsibility to tell authentic stories through dance was something Aramea felt passionate about 18 years ago when he formed Black Grace. But the decision to become a professional dancer wasn't met with enthusiasm by his Samoan family. In New
2: Zealand, the Pacific Island community is a minority, um, and it's not huge by any stretch of the imagination, and, and it's had its fair share of knocks. We're normally thought of as unskilled labour and when you finish high school, if you finish high school, you're either going to go on welfare or you're going to go and get a job in the local factory. I told my parents that I wanted to go to dance school. I'd been working in a bank for two years and was doing rather well, but I told them and my mother cried and my father simply just um, did his traditional Samoan and shook his head and walked away from me.
14: In the end, his parents supported his plan to start a Samoan and Maori contemporary dance company, and during lean times, they even put up their house as collateral for a loan. Iremia says that kind of courage is at the heart of the name Black Grace.
2: If you took on the school bully and you knew that you had no chance in hell of surviving a beating from him, but you did it anyway for your mates, then we would say that you were black equally if you asked the prettiest girl in the high school to go out with you and again you had no chance just the fact that you were daring and willing to do that we would say you were black so the word black became synonymous with sort of courage and this idea of taking a few risks
14: for Aramea the risk paid off He says Black Grace is now the largest contemporary dance company in New Zealand. Dancer Sean MacDonald was a classmate of Aramaeus and jumped at the chance to perform dance that spoke to his Maori heritage.
2: I didn't grow up sort of specifically cultural in the sense my parents grew up at a time when I wasn't encouraged to be of your culture, to be sort of Maori and to speak the language, and I grew up in the city, so I was excited.
14: And Black Race is exciting to watch. Walter Jaffe, co-founder of White Bird Dance, which brought the company to Portland, says it's incredibly athletic.
5: They look like rugby players, soccer players. And the thing that is so amazing is just to watch these strong men do this incredible movement, whether it's athletic or lyrical. They basically can do anything.
14: Neil Iremea says in traditional Pacific Island culture, there's no separation between singing and dancing, so Black Grace often fuses singing with the dance. One example is how Iremea adapted Minoi Minoi, a children's song about worker ants.
2: The traditional song goes, Minoi, 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 Peo, Seloi, Ah, Siva, Siva. It's very upbeat, it's very happy, and it's, you know, it's getting little kids to, to be a certain way. Minoi basically means move.
7: Minoi, 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 Peo, Seloi,
14: but had changed it to a minor key to be a more emotional song and then fused it into a haka-style modern dance. When it comes to music, Jeremy says his father often acts as a cultural advisor, directing singers on recording sessions. His dad's voice is even featured in many of their soundtracks. It's a way to keep his family with him, wherever he goes.
2: It's lovely to hear those songs and to hear your, your family's voices behind you, especially when you're on the stage in another country. It's fantastic it sort of ground you, remind you of what's really important.
14: For The World, I'm Dime Roberts, Portland, Oregon.
0: We've got some great shots of black rays, and I promise you, no jazz hands. The slideshow is at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for being with us.
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org by the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet.
12: PRI Public Radio International.